Here, I'm actually just going to have us stand out of reverence for God's Word. Uh, we are going to stand and hear uh, Genesis 2, how God has revealed Himself to us in these wonderful words of Genesis 2. This is, uh, if you're following along, it's Genesis 2. I will start in verse 18 through the end of the chapter. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Uh, in his book, Wounded Healer, Henry Nouwen, one of our family favorites, a Catholic priest, professor, writer, theologian, he reflects on what he calls a rootless generation. Uh, he says this rootless generation is characterized by three major things, an inwardness, a fatherlessness, and a convulsiveness. He says this inwardness says that nothing around me uh, helps to define me or, or, or has any effect on me. It's a fatherlessness in that it says uh, nothing that came before me could be handed down with any helpful impact in my life. And he says because of those things, there is a convulsiveness uh, there is this, this sense that we, we move from one thing to the other, never knowing exactly what it is. James, uh, in, in the book of James, he says something like, be tossed around by every wind of doctrine that comes. There's a convulsiveness that's there. And we feel this. Uh, we feel this in our culture today. He's speaking of a culture of, uh, of the 70s, but it still applies today. He says, uh, he says rather than being rooted in what is good and lasting and true, we have increasingly preferred to find our identity, our truth, and our purpose from within. Therefore, he concludes, we increasingly have no roots. And see, Genesis, what I love about this series that we're going into, Genesis 1 through 11 is giving us those roots. It is giving us what we need to know to be rooted today. So when, so when storms come, when the wind comes, uh, that we have the roots, we won't get uprooted, we won't fall over and die. Genesis roots us in what is good. Uh, so just a quick recap here of what we've covered so far in, in the past few weeks. We see in Genesis 1 that we're created, and therefore we are under a sovereign God. There's a sovereign triune God who creates us. He's before all time, and so we are under Him. He is the first. We are made then in the image of this God, and therefore our purpose, our why, is that we are designed to reflect His image into the world. We see at the end of chapter 1 that we, enter, we are called to enter into His rest. He patterns for us this rest. And in this rest, we are to intentionally remember that our identity is as an image bearer of God. We are commissioned to work. After we get rest, then we jump back into work and hammer that out some more, that we are our work 
comes from our rest and it interplays with our rest, but it is to work in relationship to God. He gives the rain, man cultivates. It's the thing that we do. We work in step with God working in the world. Today we're going to look uh, we're going to look at this, uh, this aspect of it then as well, is that we are designed also in his image as social, social creatures with the purpose of showing his love. We're not just created to work a bunch and to rest a bunch. We're going to find that that work is unsatisfying if left alone. We're also created for relationship. And so we're to work in relationship with him. And what I love about this is that, is that if we don't see this idea of rest and work as something that's, that's our activity, but not entirely fulfilling, we see that something does fill us in a way that, that our work and our rest can't, and that is Jesus Christ and the relationship that's there shapes our relationship with others, which then gets played out in our work and rest. One of the things that I love about Parkview is, uh, is that we have a, a very clear statement of kind of what we are doing, you know, uh, our mission statement. What are we doing here at Parkview? It is, it is uh, that we are pursuing Jesus together in everyday life. Uh, that's such a, it seems like so broad, you know, oh man, what are you doing? It's, the word that I love about, about our mission statement is this word together, because I think that, that oftentimes we could think, oh, I'm just going to work out my faith, you know, however I work it out. But because we do this together, it shows that our work in our faith is meant to be done together. We are social creatures, and we can't work out our faith if we don't have others through which we work out forgiveness and love and charity. And so uh, I want to look at the, uh, uh, this text here. I'll give you three, uh, three points here uh, and, uh, to maybe help you structure it. Here they are. I will give them up front so we can follow here. Uh, we have a problem, a solution, and then, the, uh, and then the author's exhortation. The problem is work will leave you lonely. The solution is, uh, man, in my immaturity, the solution is woman. That's it. You can just write that. Um, we'll, get, we'll, we'll flesh that out some more. The exhortation is then take seriously your relationship with God and with others. That your relationship and your work all go together here. There's a problem, a solution, and an exhortation. So the problem here, work, will, uh, work alone will leave you lonely. Work alone will leave you lonely. We get into this in verses, 11, uh, verses 18 through 20. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, last week I talked about this, this idea of a, of a chiasm or a chiasm and how, uh, how there's this poetry that happens in Genesis where there's something, it's a, it's a, it's a poetic palindrome uh, where, where something is said and then, and, then it's, and then it's said again and everything kind of works to this repetition, this pattern in the middle, and the point being in the very middle of it. What does that mean? I'm going to show it to you. Here is uh, verses uh, 18 through 20. This is one of the ways in which God has inspired the Bible be written through this poetic structure. If you look at, you know, the very top, the very bottom, you can follow along in your Bible as well, but it says, there is no helper fit for man. So that's one of our bookends. You go to the very bottom, you see the response to that. There is no helper fit for him. You go to this, then you go to point B. If you read in there, there are beasts of the field. We go to, down at the bottom, beast of the field. C, up top, bird of the heavens. C, bird of the heavens. There's a flip in the ordering of those, and it's to trigger us to say, wait a second, something is being done poetically here. There's D, then the man would call them. Then the response, man gave names, and what's at the middle? Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. There's no helper fit for him. 
and whatever he did, there was, uh, it, that was its name. Man was placed in the garden to name the animals, to care for it, to have dominion over it. In the ancient Near East, in the context that the people would be reading here, uh, they, uh, naming something put power over that. Like, if you name something, then you, then you have said, I am sovereign over you, or I have authority over you. And so, so God creates the garden, and he creates it incomplete. He puts man in there to say, he says, go have dominion of this. Go, go subdue it. Go name it. And so then he names it. It shows that God invites us into this. I'll create it, but then you name it. And, and, and together we're going to show this, this glory that's here. And man, it says, the point E here on the screen, whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. He's doing the work that he was given. He's working in line with God. He is, he is owning it. He's, he's ruling it. And, and, it's, and it's going very well. But then we hear that echo of those bookends. But he's alone. But there's no one fit for him. There's nothing like him. It's just this guy and all these animals and all this creation. And he's not full. I mean, God says in, in, in Genesis 1, our first go, kind of our overview of the creation account, God says this is very good when he creates man. But here in Genesis 2, when we zoom in a little bit more, he says, but I didn't make man as the complete expression of me because he says this isn't good for man to be alone. He's doing his work, but he's lonely. The point is, work alone will leave you lonely. Isn't that amazing in the garden? Like we haven't even hit sin in the fall. That loneliness is there. He says it's not good for man to be alone. We need to have company. God has designed us to work in relationship with others. And I want to be really clear. Later on, it's going to jump into this idea of wife, kind of at verse 24. But right here, the words that are used for man and woman here are the man and the woman. I mean, only Adam is named like for the first time here in this once. The man, the woman, showing that there, there is something about a relationship. There is something about others. There is something about this social nature of which we were created that glorifies God. Something happens there. And if we jump into our cubicles or we jump onto our, you know, the coffee shops with our laptops, if we lean way into our work, we should feel like we're unfulfilled. We should do that because we're going against what was created here. It says, I created you to rest, but you can't rest and let you have work. I've created you to work, but you can't really work and be satisfied if you, if you, don't actually, if you forget all of your relationships. I don't know if maybe, maybe you're like me. We're in suburbia, so I have a really good odds of saying something that sticks here. You got to ease off your work, not simply time-wise and, and just hit stop. You also have to check your bag at the door and be in the relationship when, when you get home. You, you, you have to talk to people as though they're people. Your coworkers aren't just chess pieces. Your boss isn't that. Like, it's saying there's a relational component here. Because you can't just be your own champion. You can't be your own king. You can't build your own empire. Because it's, one, not your role. It's not why we've been put here. We've been put here for relationship. So I love that Genesis gives suburbanites like me such a hard check to say, where are your relationships you're dropping? Because if you're dropping your relationships in light of your work, you're getting this all wrong. We're going we're gonna to see this does go south, and, and some of that's part of it. Though authoritatively co-working creation with the Lord God, with Jehovah Elohim, man was lonely. 
Though working rightly, work was not fulfilling. Maybe it's because our work, though designed very good, was not designed to be our everything. Work alone will leave you lonely because you and I have been created as social creatures intended to reflect our relational God, Elohim. His very name is plural. So being made in the image of God means work and rest, but it also means work and rest that is wrapped up in relationship. Your work is not your identity. Neither is it solely your fulfillment. That's the first point we have. Work alone will leave you alone. So what is the solution to the problem? It should be pretty easy to to guess what that solution is going to be here. Relationship is greater than work. Point two. This is verses 21 and 23. If the problem is that work doesn't fulfill our loneliness, the solution is relationship. In verses 22 or 21 through 23, we see that the relationship is woman. The, 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 the solution to Adam's problem is woman, is relationship. But who is this woman? We're going to see that woman is helper, woman is the same, and woman is subordinate. Let's read this again. Verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken out of man. So the three things. What, who is woman? Who is this helper? Who is this, 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 this person created to satisfy what God sees as not good? She is helper. This word helper is used uh, a lot uh, throughout Scripture. Helper is uh, oftentimes in the Old Testament used as kind of a, a military aid. As someone who, you, you have the mission, you, you're told what to do, and they come alongside you in a way that is unique, in a way that is helpful, in a way that you can't actually do to help you in a better, fuller way accomplish the mission that's there. Man can't do that without woman. You can't do that alone without others. Like there is this intended, created thing that's there. I mean, we even see this. It's not a direct, you know, a a, a direct connection there, but we also see this language of helper come up when Jesus speaks of the Holy Spirit. He says, I will send you another helper. There's this triune God. There's this social work that's happening together. There's there's something that that, that is complete in the way that the Spirit works that, that God the Father and God the Son maybe could have done, but chose to do it through this triune way. So she is helper. And this, and this, this helperness of her uh, has two other uh, items in there that I've mentioned. Uh, she is the same. We read here that, that Adam says, or the man says in verse 23, two things in this poem that he has here. Uh, the first lines, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. It's as though he's you know, walking through and naming all of, the, all of creation. He's tending the garden. He's doing what he should be doing. And all the while, somewhere in his mind, the words at last right here uh, suggest that he's been waiting a while, noticing I'm different than creation. I'm different than everything else. And then all of a sudden, he wakes from this sleep. He says, at last. You know, in the Josh Casey immature version of the Bible, verse 23 says, and then Adam woke and said, samesies, we are the same. We are, we, we, you, we're, we're alike. This, we can do this together. There's something different I do here. You have that image of God in you. This is different. I'm not supposed to just be out here doing this alone. I, there's something else that happens. 
we can, we can be here in a way that we couldn't before. Flesh and bone refers to kinship. It's in a way that we, they said flesh and bone back then. We say flesh and blood now. And so it's that same idea. That we're the same. But there's something else then in, in these last two, verse, or the last two lines of, of verse 23. is that she will be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now it's, I mean, in their language as well as in our language, there's the word man inside of woman and it works in both, but that's not exactly what he's going to uh, there. Uh, that breaks down. You go to any other language basically. Um, what he's saying is, uh, is that I name you. I name you woman. Adam's saying this. I name you. And so just as he has had this hierarchy, there's also right here in creation, this hierarchy there. There's God who is sovereign and he creates man. The one who is creating is above by default. I mean, it makes sense. But then there's also this naming. The one who names is also there in a different way, but there. We're the same, but we're different. And this is how God chose to reveal himself. He says, let's make man in our image. And so he decides to create something that is communal. He decides to create something that is the same, but has different roles, has different authority. And so it's suggested, uh, it's, uh, it's suggested here that the woman is, uh, is, is created equal in, in that she is by nature also the image of God. This is Genesis 1.27. And also that, as we read on in the Bible, that woman is, uh, is maybe, I don't know, theologically equal uh, in, that, in that through faith in Christ, she can also be forgiven and rightly, equally considered to be one of God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. This is Colossians 3. To complete the reflection of our triune God, woman is also hierarchically subordinate to man just as the church is to Christ. And I think that is where the authors of the Bible uh, really pick up what's happening here and hear the resounding effects of why this? Why would you put this here? Uh, you know, our culture, if we read our culture into this, this, is, this, is, this is, is a really offensive text. But we read the Bible and the authors of the Bible pick this up. Uh, one of those would be, I think, the easy go-to would be Ephesians 5. Um, to say there's something else that's happening here. There's something foreshadowing Christ. There's something we can learn about how to reflect Christ. And so I think I want to go uh, there for a moment to see that, uh, that a relationship is the context of your work. And so we take this idea, this, this hierarchy thing. Since we are created in the image of God, Genesis 1, and since Christ is the incarnate image of the invisible God, Colossians 1, it seems that we should understand our roles as we see Christ as the point and pattern of our faith. If we are the image of God, we need to look to the perfect image, Jesus Christ, to see how we're supposed to reflect. So here it is, Ephesians, uh, Ephesians 5, 22 through 25. I've, I've cut some of it out for the sake of time. Uh, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ, there it is, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body. So also husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I think Paul does a great job here of helping us with this text. He's saying uh, there is this, this, this hierarchy. There is this thing happening here, but all it's really doing is differentiating the roles. And it gives us a different direction. How are the husbands supposed to be the head? Just as Christ 
models this for us in his relationship to the church. How is a woman to be, uh, to, to, uh, to, to uh, sorry, to su- submit yourselves to your husband just as uh, the church submits to Christ? What we get here is an invitation into another image. We get an invitation into, um, to live out in our relationships. And I'm going to speak, you know, specifically right now to marriages. Your marriage is, is not just a thing that happens. It's not like a place that you arrive. It's not just a Christian check, you know, checkbox to say, are you really a Christian? Well, you got to be married. As though we do oftentimes, marriage is an invitation to be a living testimony, a display, an example of the gospel. So right here in Genesis, 1, or Genesis 2, and over here in Ephesians 5, we're seeing that there's this intended, created way of expressing God in our everyday life. How I interact with my wife is going to show what I believe of God. How Christ interacts with the church should be the way in which I interact with my wife. How my wife loves and respects me is how the church ought love and respect my uh, 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 Christ. So this marriage thing is actually a testimony of the gospel. A Christ saves sinners. That is, you reflect a relational God in the way you relate to others. You reflect a relational God in the way you relate to others, for better or for worse. But this kind of God-reflecting relationship is not limited to marriage. I don't want to just stop there, because if we look in uh, Ephesians 5, we see that because after it immediately is Ephesians 6, which is linked to this whole idea. The Apostle Paul says that this kind of idea, that, that the way we interact with each other within our work, the way we interact with each other within our lives, extends to the roles of parents and children. How you parent or how you uh, honor your parents is a reflection of how we relate, uh, is a reflection of how God and, 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 and his, or how Jesus and the Father, the Son, how God relates to his world. It also extends into the workplace as employers, employees, as supervisors and subordinates. Like there's something that happens there in those exchanges within our work, in marriage, in parenting, in work. And I'm sure naming those, I've hit, you you could probably check the box on at least one of those. God has put you in a place to display that. So your relationship is the context of your work. You work out the gospel in the way that you work. But let's look at Ephesians 5, 23 through 25 to hear how these same creatures with different roles relate to one another. It goes on to say the work of this relationship is that she might, the wife might become more pure and holy and I'll quote it, by the washing of water with the word, which means that the work in this uh, and, and how we work out our life in, in relationship to God as he's working, as we're working, one of the things that happens is we become more holy when we listen to the word of God together. When we, when we come together in our marriage, in our parenting, in our workplace, and we say, what is God saying? or maybe before this was printed, when they stand in the garden and man and, and woman stand there in the garden and they listen to what God tells them. We're going to find out that when we don't do this, just as when Adam and Eve don't do this, chapter 3 of Genesis, it goes down the drain. 
So I would encourage you. You know, what, what happens with Adam? Uh, something happens. Uh, there's sin, there's temptation. When he stops listening to the word of God. This is a pattern for all of us in, in our parenting, in our work, in, in, in our marriages, wherever we're at. That no matter how lonely we are, no matter how successful we are, one of our tasks is to always be listening to the word of God. If you're not doing that in your marriage, you need to. And you need to do it within the way that the Bible is saying that. Uh, don't be that, uh, uh, we look at Adam, and just, this is going to be helpful maybe for, for, for the guys a bit. I'm going to go into that a bit and maybe preach to myself right now. What we see here with Adam is not the gardener that God intended him to be. We don't, he's placed in the garden to do something specific. The image of gardener is very helpful here. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over it. But his work is blessed as a gardener. What is he not? He's not a tyrant. So we say, hey, we need to do this or that on my terms, dictating your will. And maybe we'll drop it down, yelling, guilt-tripping, shaming, withholding. That's ways we like to do that. Uh, maybe uh, he's, not, he's not placed there in this relationship for this work as a clumsy boss, ignorantly offending, uh, constantly forgetting and ceaselessly casting his own vision. He's not a hierarchical equal, going quiet, just waiting for it to play out or resolve on its own. And here's maybe for everyone. Uh, God didn't make wives or kids or bosses or coworkers to, uh, to, uh, to resent you, to be resistant to you. If we remember where we're at when this is given as the way to live, we're in chapter 2 of Genesis. We're still in paradise. We haven't left that yet. Like This is what it's supposed to be like. This is how it's supposed to work. And it works well when it works this way. The resentment that we have, the fear that, oh, my wife is going to come back at me, or my boss isn't going to like this, or whatever it would be, that, that, the fear or the pride that really hinders all of these relationships that's coming next week in, in, in chapter 3. That's the fall. And I, I don't know, I just feel like encouraging, you know, one of the things we, we, we talk about up here is that just even in the act of preaching, there's spiritual warfare, you know. Um, even in the act of taking communion, there's spiritual warfare. I wonder if we would think of those uh, and just create time uh, with those relationships that could tend to be tense I just create a space to, to say, hey, hold up. I, I really feel the fall, however you would say it. I feel the fall is here, and we need to combat the fall with paradise. Let's take this back to paradise. I have not led in a way I need to. I have not followed in a way I need to. I know that as you lead, you are not going to tell me everything that you need me to do for you. Rather, you're going to lead me to God because that's what Christ does for the church, right? And, and, and if you are my, uh, my, my supervisor, I need to follow that as the masters and slaves do. If you are my parent, I need to trust that. But on the other side, I need you to let me follow you. I need you to resource me to lead. Not because I have a big plan that I want to roll out, but because I've been given a whole lot of instruction that we need to move towards holiness. And that's my burden. That's my work. That's the garden that I am to tend. And that's what God has given me.
I think we've, we've messed up for centuries since, you know, all of Christ and the Bible and all of this uh, has really been explained to us in, in clarity, this side of resurrection. We've messed up this idea of authority and submission. And so even talking today, I just, the only reason why it's not awkward for me is because I've talked about this before. But in our cultural moment, talking about authority and submission is not really welcomed. What if we were that pleasing aroma of the paradise version of authority and submission? What if we did our work as we were supposed to, tending the garden of souls as opposed to building our empire and having our trophy wives and our big houses and our kids that excel? And That's okay if those are things that are part of your life, but it's not if that's your doing. If it's not a gift from God that you are stewarding and you're doing it wrong, God has given you a task and he's put people in your life for that, namely Christ. Because none of this can work if we don't have Christ. Now, it's not just a, a pastor's pivot here. This is actually the, the working out of Ephesians 5. This is, this is where Genesis 2 is pointing us to, as it says that you will ultimately be lonely. This person or that person won't satisfy. This, this won't work this way. Why do we have such an incredible uh, hookup culture? Why do we have workup, uh, workaholism? Why do we have... Uh, why do we have um, uh, all these different uh, 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 Facebook, social media, why does that take off so much? It's because we, we can't ever find that one person who's going to speak that one word to us. So we, we spread the net wide and we want to hear our identity. That's rootless. <laughs> we find our root in, in Christ. And when he says this relationship is what matters, you can actually be a gardener. You, you were really terrible. You, you made a whole, whole bunch of mistakes. I forgive you. You're in right relationship with God. Just bring your sins to me. I forgive you. I'll show you the way. I have done this already. I've already embodied Christ. I've been that image, and I've tended the garden well. Give them the seed of the truth, the gospel, and then I actually water that seed. And then we, and then we watch it grow. What we see here is that Adam is not originally commissioned to be a tyrant or a clumsy boss or a hierarchical equal. We're given something that's good, very good, Rather, Adam is, the first, is, a, is first a gardener, expect, uh, inspecting, tending, washing, weeding, always encouraging, but patiently, expectantly, prayerfully waiting for growth. That's our work. We are to work alongside God for his glory in meaningful, rightly ordered relationship with others. And I wonder if maybe that is why the two greatest commandments go hand in hand. They're somewhat symbiotic. Love God, and what we get here, love others. Love God and love others. You'll love God more and understand God more when you interact with others, but you'll also know how to love others more when you are with God. So our work is to tend the garden. Our work is to do this with each other, together listening to the Word of God. I do want to foreshadow kind of what's coming up next because it's big. We're kind of like right on the edge of a big dark mountain and, uh, and I got to at least acknowledge it here. The author takes us, uh, takes us there in these last couple of verses. Christ is our primary relationship, but there's something else that, that happens. Verse 24 and 25, maybe two just 
editor notes. So kind of as literature goes, there's, there's this song of creation that's being unfolded here. There's this explanation that's happening here. And we could have actually just stopped Genesis 2 at, at the end of Genesis 3. There's a beautiful song. This is he's taken out of man, and oh, we're good. And then we move on. Uh, but then the, the, the author here, Moses, writes something to give us a couple little heads up. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Therefore, he says, here's a conclusion of what happens. It's kind of the institution of marriage. Uh, this is what happens. Uh, throughout the Bible, people, uh, authors left and right, inspired by the Holy Spirit, will come back to this text and say, and that's the reason why we get married. There's a permanence here. There's a presence. There's, a, there's an importance to this, to this relationship. And so in marriage, I'll be very serious, in marriage, like it said, like you commit to that person for the long haul. If you are reflecting the story of God's love for his people and the marriage of the bridegroom and the bride, the church and Christ, if you, if you are reflecting that image, then, then, it, and then it seems like you're doing the opposite of the gospel when you in your own life separate. And so he, he calls us to that. Uh, now, that's not just an insensitive thing. There's, there's more in the Bible that fleshes out, like, what are the grounds for divorce here or there? There, there are some ways to go forward on that. But he does call the question, this image and the reflection. But what if you do that, not just in the marriage thing, what if you do that just with regular relationships? What if you are very uncommitted in your work? What if you are very divisive in your work? What if you're very frustrated, upset, slanderous in your work or with your kids? You shame them, you throw the authority at them. Are you showing that good expression of God's image to clarify who he is? If you're not, you're not doing the work as you were told to do. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and thus shall become one flesh. It is very important that you steward well the relationships that I give you. Okay, first, verse 25. It said, and then the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. It is a foreshadowing because they are going to become ashamed. They're both going to realize, yeah, we're naked now, and they don't get that. But it's not just a thing where, uh, where it's the, their sense of, of shame is kind of an inward thing, like, oh, I'm embarrassed now because of this circumstance here. Um, the circumstance changed, and now I'm embarrassed. There's like an, an inner presence within, within the, like the ancient Near East, the idea of this idea of shame. There's like an inner an inner unshamedness, the kind of like childlike joy, you know, where they don't even realize, you know, my little girl runs around, that, my littlest girl, don't embarrass them, littlest girl runs around naked during diaper time, totally unashamed. It's that kind of, that, that kind of thing. They were unashamed in the presence of God. When I think of God, I think of the list of confessions I need to have. They're here doing it rightly with each other. They are, they, are, they are working the garden. They are fulfilling their roles within, within the relationships. They are rightly ordered here. And he says, and when it's this way, there's no shame. There's no shame. That kind of shame it, it only goes away. Uh, it, it comes in the next chapter. And it only goes away through faith in Christ. He said, you won't ever be able to fulfill your roles. You won't ever be able to do your work. You won't ever be able to rest rightly. You won't ever be able to perfectly or, or, or even in a good way reflect the image of God unless you first come to terms with the primary relationship, Jesus Christ. So that is setting up huge roots of our reality. And we're going to see here in the, in, in the days uh, uh, or the weeks going ahead that starting next week, we're going to have uh, Andrew Hancock preach uh, on the fall. The whole thing unravels. And then the rest of Genesis, we're going to see the spread 
of sin. We're going to see how, uh, how when we don't listen to God together, we don't do the work that God has given us, how it just, it just goes away. There's shame. There's loneliness. There's darkness. There's separation. Henry Nouwen says, what this rootless generation needs is Jesus Christ. And I think Moses, writing Genesis, would say the same thing. Where is your hope? Where is your identity? It must first be in Christ if you are ever to do your life well. Let's pray. God, thank you that you have given us Christ. Thank you that you have given us uh, your word. Thank you that you have called us into a, into a right relationship with you. I pray that you would help us to understand what that means. Um, we have sinned. We don't do our role well, whether it's fear, whether it's ignorance, whether it's pride. We choose daily not to listen to you. We choose daily not to do the great work that you have given us. I pray that you would convict us to not lean too far into our work, but to acknowledge the relationships that surround it that you would give us protection to be present when at home, be present uh, when with friends, to be present when at work, to separate those in ways that are, that are holy and good. You are a God who puts limits and puts boundaries and puts separation. I pray that you would help us to understand those and navigate them well. Pray that, the, uh, that, that Parkview Church would be uh, increasingly an example of people who understand the work that you've given us, the seriousness of the work and the hope that is in the work, that you would help us to understand, to bring others along as you have given them to us. Give us creativity and endurance in, in, in speaking the gospel to one another in our marriages, in our parenting, in our work, in our friendships. In your name, amen.